All right, if you'll find the book of John again, the seventh chapter, John chapter number seven, and we're going to begin in verse number 40, and we're going to read down, we'll try to cover uh, to the end of the chapter uh, today, Uh, but I want you to uh, take note of verses 40 uh, through 43. We'll use that as our, uh, our starting point here. Verse 40 of John chapter number 7. And again, Jesus, of course, has been, has just had been speaking at the, the great day of the feast, the last day of the gathering of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Holy Convocation. He had given the invitation that if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. I had mentioned to you, Jesus gave the ultimate invitation then to uh, come and, and take of him those that thirsted. And, of course, he explained about he who comes, uh, described the Holy Spirit that would uh, eventually come upon them. And verse 40 is kind of the response to what Jesus had invited them to do. Verse 40 says, And many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? Uh, Let's take note of verses 41 and 42 really to kind of begin here. Uh, Notice the response. It it gives us the word others. Um, It it says that as Jesus gave this message, it was received differently. Uh, People viewed his words differently. Uh, I think a lot of what they, how they perceived Christ, what they perceived to know about him, what they believed was going to happen. So you see there, it says, others said this is the Christ, but some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Now we're going to get into the importance of that uh, because there's a misunderstanding as to where Jesus actually came from. And that's really what's at the heart of what's going on here. Now we read these things and, and sometimes I think we, we fail to understand that this is not just for us to just look at and to consider what these people were saying. In other words, uh, this passage this morning is not something we should just uh, gloss over and say, okay, I don't, I've already answered that question, uh, who, who Christ is. Uh, that phrase, this is the Christ, uh, that is a definitive declaration of what they believe that he is. But you notice in the midst of that, there were other people who said, this is a prophet or this is of the prophet. And then some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? So there was a connection that says, okay, these are saying this is Christ, but would Christ actually come from Galilee? This is, this is information we're not fully understanding. But we ought to consider this today because the word of God is recorded not just for the learning of the people who heard him, but it's also for us to be able to learn also. Don't pass so quickly over this and think there's not a message for me in this this morning because there certainly is. Text like this should cause us to examine our own faith. It should cause us to examine our own belief. What do we think about Christ? Uh, There are many people who could accurately quote Scripture. There are many people today who could say, um, I know that text, or I know a lot of the Bible, I know what certain verses say, but yet they give no evidence of being born again. It's not enough to just know Scripture. It's not enough just to know that I have a familiarity with who this Christ would be. Uh, It's been said uh, that a, a knowledge of Christ 
is a result of an experience. Now, I don't mean an emotional experience, but it's something that you know is authentic. It's something that you know is true. It's something that's what's been referred to by some as an experiential knowledge. In other words, it's something that it's a knowledge that goes beyond just human comprehension. It's a heart knowledge. God's truth is vital this morning. God's truth is what we all need today. We need God's truth uh, more than anything else. And I would say this, I've been through seminary. I've been through college. There's no greater schooling than what we get as a church under the preaching of the word of God. I'm all for it. I'm all for learning. I really am. I think you should do all you can do. I've been through seminary. I've gained a lot from it. But I will tell you that there is no greater knowledge than being taught of the Lord and being taught of his word. Being shown this is what God's word is showing us. What are things that we know or we see when we have a knowledge of God that goes more than just knowing some scripture? Well, number one, an experiential knowledge of God is going to be based upon understanding the depravity of man and the depravity of our own heart. We realize that we come to the Bible with certain suppositions. We come to the Bible with certain things of how we've been raised, things that we grew up knowing. Uh, we were talking, uh, I was talking with Chase about the, the, the passage he read about Zacchaeus. And as a child, there was a song that went with that. I'm not going to sing that, but there was a song that went with that. My first understanding of Zacchaeus was about that song. It wasn't about the scripture. It was about, it was about the song. I learned the song before I learned the text. And it was not until later on that I really, as he read that, if you were paying attention... That Zacchaeus is a lot more than just about being a wee little man. A wee little man was he. This is a a picture of redemption. It's an amazing picture of redemption. And when I actually saw, wait a minute, that song was not just a Sunday school song. That's actually a Bible text. And I read the Bible text and said, wow, now there's a lot more to experience when you read the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus recognized his own depravity. Matter of fact, he does something that's unheard of in today's society. After he knew Christ, he actually said, I want to make restitution for all the people I've wronged. Wow, what a story. What an amazing picture. So if we've experienced that, we've seen that how we are depraved of ourselves and we see ourselves as a wicked sinner, and yet we've received Christ as the Savior of sinners. If you've tasted of the Lord, you know that the Lord is gracious. If, you, if we speak about the Lord's graciousness, when we talk about the Lord's grace, you know that that's more than just a buzzword. Grace is not just a word that's a church word. It's not a cliche. It is literally where our foundation is found. If you're not just a hearer of the word, you're a doer of the word. And again, not perfection, not a law keeper. If you thank God for opening your eyes, you praise the Lord that he came to you then you have some experience and knowledge of God. Now, you might be totally ignorant of foreign language. You may not know any Hebrew. You may not know any Greek. It's okay. You can know Hebrew, know Greek, know all the ins and outs and nuances of of a language and still not know Christ. It's possible. You can certainly know that. But if you know him, you know who Christ is, you know what eternal life is, you will find yourself saying, I want to sit at the feet of Christ and I want to learn from him. I need it more than my daily food. 
I can't go a day without sitting at the feet of Jesus. Then now you're starting to see the picture of what Jesus had in mind. Jesus wasn't looking to gain a following. He, he wasn't taking pride in saying, look how many followers I have. Wow, that's like the whole society today, isn't it? <laughs> we, we ask people now, how many followers do you have on social media? I often laugh and I say half of them are probably not even real. They're, they're uh, those, those robotic ones, they say. They're not even real followers. But we, we gain our sense of self-worth by how many followers. Jesus wasn't concerned with how many people were going to follow him. But he was concerned that people knew who he was. And there's even some confusion about this Jesus. Can this be him? This guy's from Galilee. And we'll get into that, why that was causing such a problem. But here's what we could sum it all up. How do you know you know Christ? We say along with the blind man who said, one thing I know, where I, whereas I was blind, now I see. That's evidence of an experiential knowledge of God. I was blind and now I see. Eyes opened, I pray every day that God would give me a better knowledge of Him. You know, it's interesting. We have interesting conversations in our house and sometimes they, they tie into messages that I didn't see was ever going to happen and yet they kind of build on that. And there was a conversation Jennifer was having with me about the knowledge of knowing Christ even above just having a knowledge of His Word just in general. It's to know Him like Paul said, the power of his resurrection. It's not just about, hey, I can quote scripture. I can tell you where Jesus' birthplace is. I can tell you certain things. It is about, do I actually know him? Do I have a knowledge of him? Now, it's fair to say that people in this text, there were some whose eyes were clearly still closed. And there were some that maybe were open faintly to where they began to see. And we'll get to the end of the story. There's actually a familiar man here who Jesus had already met with and yet still yet unconverted, but yet he has something to say. So notice verse 40. It says, many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, that's what Jesus had just said, of a truth, this is the prophet. Now, they are speaking most likely of the prophet in which Moses had written about all the way back in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. So let's turn there and let's look at this together. Deuteronomy 18. So we're kind of getting an understanding of what people uh, may have had in mind. So this first group of people, of a truth, this is the prophet. Now, it looks very closely that Jesus... Uh, as he's speaking, they are quoting back to a verse that Moses had written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Deuteronomy 18.15. It says this, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. Now, this prophet is ultimately, in Deuteronomy, was a reference to Christ. It connects us right back to John chapter number 6. God had promised Israel a revelation of himself. Almost everybody in Israel knew that. They knew that Jesus would, there would be a revelation of God, and it would be manifested in a prophet. A prophet is a reference to a representative of God to man. So we hear about a prophet. It is God's representative to man. 
Now, we know that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the role of that prophet. Matter of fact, he would completely fulfill the promise of a prophet which would be raised up. And so all of Israel should have seen this coming. They should have known it. And again, remember who the main audience here at the Feast of Tabernacles would have been Jewish, obedient leaders and Jewish people from all over who came in obedience to keep this feast. Yet some said, all right, here's the prophet. But then others said, this is the Christ. So we see that there is a, a, a disagreement, so to speak, with who this man is. Now, it doesn't really say here that they believed that he was the Messiah. But what it does say is that they believed that he was maybe an extraordinary prophet. Here's the thing. They would have acknowledged Isaiah as being a great prophet. They would have acknowledged Jeremiah as being one of the great prophets. To them, to many, Jesus was just another one that would precede the actual coming of the Messiah. So this is not so much a declaration that they believed that he is the Messiah. But yet, look, it says in verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. Now that's one step further. The one group said, this is the prophet. The other group said, this is the Christ. Now that is a direct reference to the true, the true Messiah. Where did they get that conclusion? They concluded that based upon the miracles and his words of grace in which he had spoken. But again, notice it, it says that this is the Christ, but some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Now, remember, we already know there was a question as to where Jesus would come from. We saw that back in, in the verse 27 of John 7, when it says, How be it, we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Now, back in that text, they had dismissed Christ's claim to be their Messiah on the false supposition that Jesus was born in Nazareth. So there's confusion over, can this be the Messiah? Because he's supposed to come from a certain place. And again, stay with me. You'll find out, that you'll see exactly where he's going with this. So there's still a question. Shall Christ come from Galilee? That's their question. Now look at verse 42. Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? You can almost put yourself into this picture. And you can begin to see that there are conversations going on about who Jesus is, what the Bible says, what some believe, and yet there's still confusion as to whether or not he's just a prophet or whether or not he is the Messiah. Now, the one thing that they're saying here that we know, we're going to look at these verses, the Scripture does clearly tell us that Christ comes from the seed of David. So they knew that. Hath not the Scripture said? These are people that know the Bible. And yet, there's a question as to whether or not this is actually just an extraordinary prophet, or is this the Messiah? Now, Isaiah had mentioned something about this in Isaiah, the 11th chapter. So turn there, if you would. Isaiah, the 11th chapter, and look at verse number uh, 1. Isaiah 11, 1. Again, this is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. He's described as a branch. So Isaiah 11.1 1 tells us this, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch 
shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the, of the fear of the Lord. So here we have this, this mention of a rod and of the stem of Jesse. Now, this bypasses that connection to David, but it indeed is linking him to that branch or that, that particular lineage. A branch, it is the exact same word, or it's a different word rather, from the one that's used in Isaiah 4 2. But it's, it's, to be, it's, a, it's an offshoot. But the Hebrew word, and, re, and Matthew makes reference to this Christ, he makes reference to Christ as a Nazarene. So what we're seeing here, though, is that there's, there's the evidence that this, this branch would come and he would come out of the root of David or out of the lineage of David. So they're having these discussions about where Christ or the Messiah would come from. In the book of the Psalms, in Psalm 132, verse 11, there's a reference made there. Psalm 132, verse 11. I'll give you two or three of them here to look at. Psalm 132, 11, and then down into verse 17. Psalm 132, verse 11. The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. And then verse 17. There will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. Uh, that Literally, that word anointed is the appointed king. It is the Messiah. It is in the line of David. He writes there in verse 11 that the Lord has sworn in truth unto David. That means that God made a covenant or a promise that David's offspring would reign over an eternal kingdom. That's the promise being made. That this offspring that comes out of the lineage of David will reign over this eternal kingdom. Verse 17, he mentions the word, I, I make the horn of David to bud. The horn there is a symbol of strength. It's a symbol of power. To bud means to sprout with life. In other words, there is this, this picture of he who was chosen to reign over this eternal kingdom would come out of the line of David. Okay, now there's a lot of history there and a lot of backstory, but it's important to understand where the thinking of the people that was listening coming from. Remember, I could tell you, you could know all those stories. Like you could be a much better scholar about all the passages and how we get from the lineage of David to Christ. I guarantee you there are people here today that can probably know that better than I do. You can know all that and not know Christ. You can know all that and still have your eternity separated from Christ. Should we learn? Absolutely. These individuals who were listening to Jesus speak, they were familiar with what he was saying. What are you saying, preacher? They were not ignorant that a Messiah was coming. Okay, They knew it. They knew their scriptures. There were Pharisees here who were the teacher of teachers. They had taught them about a Messiah to come, yet most were believing that this was not him. Now, the Bible also gets very specific and says that this Jesus or this Messiah would come out of the town of Bethlehem. And you can find that in the book of Micah. So if you can find the, find the book of Micah and go to the fifth chapter there. Micah chapter number five. And again, we're just going to kind of pull 
uh, one of the verses here, Micah chapter number five. Not the easiest book to find. Very small book. Micah chapter five, verse number two. But thou, Bethlehem, Apophrata, though thou be little among the households of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Bethlehem, is, this is the, the only prophecy of Messiah's birthplace. This prophesied that being born in Bethlehem would uniquely link the Messiah directly to David. This is a directed link to David. And it said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now you begin to understand why they were saying, wait a minute, he can't be the Messiah because he was from Nazareth. He can't be the Messiah because he's from Galilee. The prophecy is, where would he be born? In Bethlehem. The people that are arguing about Jesus, they're thinking about Jesus of Nazareth. We've said it, right? Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Galilee. The birthplace of Jesus, Bethlehem, matters. He was born in Bethlehem because that's where the prophecy said he would come from. So when we begin to make statements like, well, I'm glad they got, found a place in Bethlehem to stay the night or whatever the case was. I'm glad that time allowed them and allowed Mary before she delivered. I'm glad they got there. That's what the prophecy said he would come from. This Messiah, who would be linked directly to David, would come and be born in Bethlehem. These are the very things in which they were objecting to. They were objecting to the fact, how could he be? He can't be our Messiah because he's from Nazareth. He can't be our Messiah because many knew Jesus, the man from Galilee. Okay, again, you're seeing something happening here that is not that uncommon in our world today. I mentioned in the first service, there's a lot of people who today would identify Jesus the name Jesus with Christmas and Christmas with Jesus, nativity scene with the baby, they know that's Jesus. But they're not saying this is the Christ. They're not saying this is the Savior of the world. To them, it's either a live nativity scene prop, a person, or it's a prop. It's a symbol of what the world for a certain time during the year recognizes as part of Christmas. And we know that that's not what the intent was. Jesus was born exactly where the prophecy said he was to be born. Now, you think this isn't a big deal, but look what it says in verse 43 of John 7. These thoughts, okay? So there was a division among the people because of him. So here, Jesus some think he's from Nazareth, some think he's from Galilee. The prophecy said he would come from Bethlehem. Listen, here's how simple this is. Having a wrong idea of where Jesus was born led some to reject his sonship and his messianic claims. Something as simple as not knowing where he was born caused division. And we think Jesus being born in Bethlehem doesn't matter. When you sing a hymn that talks about Bethlehem, you realize you're singing a hymn that's talking about a fulfillment of a prophecy. I don't know about you, but that's remarkable to me. 
Somebody, when they wrote those hymns, regardless of what you think about everything else going on, somebody understood the connection that this is part of a prophecy being fulfilled. It wasn't just a convenient town. It wasn't just a good place to stop for the night. It's not just about no room in the inn. It's not just about all I have is a stable. And whether, whether the manger was a cave or whether it was a wooden, whatever it was, let's look beyond that and say this. It was the prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So what do we think about when the birth of Christ is the most important? Whether it was, whether it was hay and straw and whether it was a cave? No, it was a fulfillment of a prophecy. Because this Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Now, how many divisions? I have one commentator surmised that this was a sharp division. Here's the way I look at it. Division is always sharp. Okay, I don't care what it is. You're, if you're divided on this, that is something that has caused a rift. This caused a rift between people. Where Jesus was coming from was hindering the promises and the fulfillment of messianic claims. People were arguing about where he came from. We look at Bible and we say, boy, they just really didn't get it in their day. Look, we're arguing about this stuff in our day and age today. We are making the same arguments about these things and it is causing people to reject Christ as the Messiah. A lot of these arguments that are happening, these debates, they're worthless. They're without value. I told you last night, there was a, there was a debate going on between two men last night. It was the most worthless, worthless thing I've ever seen. They did nothing to help the cause of Christ. They only hindered it. Because they're engaging in things that were not teaching people to have an experiential knowledge with Christ. They were engaging in things that at best are negotiable. At best. Because they were sometimes arguing about things that we just don't know yet. They were arguing about, I know the mysteries of God. You don't know the mysteries of God. I know this doctrine. You don't know this doctrine. It solved nothing. Division is always sharp. So sharp... Verse 44 says, and some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Now, let's not read into the text. It doesn't say which ones wanted to take him. Whether the people that believe in Nazareth or people that believe in Galilee, the people that said this is the Christ, the people that said this is a prophet, all it says is because of this conversation, people wanted to arrest him. Now, what had he said? Jesus had said nothing more than if you're thirst, if any man have thirst, come unto me. I mean, that sounds pleasant to me. Why did they reject that? Because they knew he was speaking as being equal or the authority of God. Because he's going to say here, no man spake like this. Remember, we've talked about this. It didn't mean the way he pronounced his words. It's about his authority. When Jesus said, if any man thirst, he wasn't saying, hey, roll this around in your mind and consider whether, you want to, whether you're thirsty or not. He's saying, by the authority of my words, if you're thirsty, come unto me and I will satisfy you. That's why when you come to Christ, it wasn't like, hey, let me roll this around a little while. It was, if you're thirsty, come unto me. And you came running to him because he came looking for you. So some of them were in favor of seizing him. And by the way, no man laid hands on him. This was not going to be, hey, Jesus, we need you to come with us. This would have been a violent apprehension. Um, there would not have been Miranda rights read to Jesus. You have the right to remain silent. Okay, we, again, we got an American view on everything. 
And by the way, that's a, that's a wonderful right you have in this country, but that's not what would have been happening here. This would have been a seizure of basically, you're coming with us. But what does it say? Some of would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Now, did they reconsider? No, they couldn't lay hands on him because the appointed hour had not yet come. Nobody was touching Jesus until the appointed hour. That's the power of the scriptures. When you just read this, you read it from a human perspective, you can say, oh yeah, they thought about it, but then they decided, we'll wait. They couldn't. Because he had not yet been appointed to be taken yet. Now then the Bible does give us a little bit more insight because we know that they were restrained by the power of God. We saw back in John 7, verse 30, then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. So lest we think I'm making up a thought there, they couldn't take him still because the hour had not come yet. But then we see verse 45, that the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto him, why have they said unto them, I'm sorry, why have ye not brought him? Now the authorities begin to ask questions. All right, why is he still free? They want answers. They want to know, why did you not arrest him? Why did you not apprehend him? And then look at verse 46. The officers answered, never man spake like this man. Now back in John 7, 32, it said the Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him and that the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. This is not the first time the Pharisees have said, go get him. And now they're asking the questions, what's the problem? That's my translation. What's the problem? Why aren't you getting him? What kept them? Notice, have you ever, have you ever tried to, somebody ask a question and the answer doesn't seem to go along with what the question is being asked? In other words, okay, let's, let's role play a little bit here. If I ask you a question, why have you not done this? You begin to say, well, circumstances weren't right. We couldn't get him alone. Uh, we, we had problems uh, getting to him. They say the reason they didn't take him is because no man's ever spake like this before. It almost doesn't even go with the question. So wait a minute, you're telling me you didn't apprehend him because he spoke a different way? Humanly speaking, we begin to say, well, is it his eloquence? Is it his presentation? No, it's the authority. He's speaking authoritatively. Again, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how important this authority is. It's said that the Pharisees and the chief priests, they sent officers to arrest him. These officers were among the people. They heard him speak. They all had opinions. They were astonished by his person. They were astonished by his power and his words. They returned back to their masters without him. And the Pharisees say, what in the world's going on? Now, here's what's interesting. Back in Isaiah, which we were already there, and we read that first prophecy. I think it was Isaiah 11. I think we read the first verse about the, uh, the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Look what, look what it says in verse, verse 3 of that same chapter of Isaiah 11, 3. Continuing the thoughts about this branch. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked." You're talking, about, you're talking about a deity here now. You're talking about a God. You're talking about someone, when he spoke, 
He spoke with authority. Now, again, it wasn't in a human speaking saying, hey, don't you dare touch me. When he spoke words even like, if you're thirsty, come unto me. He spoke in a way that nobody had ever heard speak like that before. Never man spake like this man. These officers, now we don't know, again, try not to, I try not to do this. Try not to put yourself so much in the text that you could picture yourself in the surroundings. But the only comparison that I saw people try to give, and this isn't, doesn't originate with me, they use the word spellbound or taken in. Um, so much, I mean, you ever been so focused on something and so engaged that you can't take your eyes off of it, you can't put it away, you can't, it's kind of that idea. They were so taken by what he said and how he said it, they couldn't even act. It's almost as if, they were being restrained by the hand of God. That's what the authoritative word of God does. Why didn't they launch upon him? And why later will they launch upon him the next time and have success? Is because Jesus now is going to relinquish some of that authority in order that he might be taken. But now is not the time. So they're not getting him yet. Verse 47, then answered them the Pharisees, are you also deceived? Imagine that. The religious leaders of the day are asking, are you deceived by this Jesus? Now remember, they're the religious leaders of the day. If you needed religious spiritual counsel, guess who you went to? You went to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are saying, you're not falling for all this, are you? You're not deceived who the people who think, who actually are claiming he's the Christ or claiming he's God. Are you deceived? Is that why you're not taking him? And then it says this, have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? Pretty remarkable here. The, the Pharisees asked the officers in a modern vernacular, has he seduced and deceived you also? We're the teachers, we're the masters. And what a, what a, what a statement of condemnation. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? The answer at that point, as far as we know and seeing here, would be no. That's what makes what happens with Paul very remarkable because Paul describes himself as the Pharisee of the Pharisees and he's one that actually believes on him. But there's somebody that believes on Jesus before we ever get there. We're going to see his name at the end of this chapter, but he's not going to believe quite yet. But he's going to go from scoffer to making sure Jesus gets his rights, to actually proclaiming faith in Christ. So when the Pharisees are asking this question, at this point, no Pharisee had actually believed on Jesus. That's what they're saying. The officers who had been sent out, the Pharisees, none of the rulers had believed on him. With, they berated the people of being ignorant of the Scriptures. Here's the religious leaders telling the people, you're deceived, and yet the people who knew the Scripture the most were the most deceived. Folks, if you don't see the application in this today, you're missing this. Those who knew the Scripture the best were the most deceived. And that's why if all you know today, you can quote Scripture, you can, you've got Scripture memorized, but you don't know Christ, you are no different than the Pharisees were. 
Because they could say, we believe all the scripture, but we don't believe he's the Messiah. Now grant them this. They didn't have the New Testament. They only had the Old. That's why every prophecy that was fulfilled was an Old Testament prophecy. You notice I didn't take you to the New Testament to show that they should have known this. All the Old Testament prophecies pointed to the New Testament fulfillment in Jesus Christ. They knew the Old Testament. If you could have brought one of those Pharisees in today and have him stand up behind this pulpit and teach you, he would have known much better all the Old Testament sacrifices, all the feasts. He would know the ins and outs. He could probably even quote from memory all the scripture I just gave you about the promised Messiah. But yet, they didn't know Christ. So, verse 49, But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. This is about the highest point of arrogance they could have possibly said. But the Pharisees actually believed they kept the law. A Pharisee would say, not only do we know the law, we obey the law to the letter. This people who knoweth not the law, in other words, the Pharisees are saying this, the people who don't know what we know, they're cursed. They're deceived. They're, they're believing the lies and the deception. This is, this is breathtaking arrogance when they say they are cursed by God. Now, can I tell you something? One of the worst things, no, let me rephrase that. The worst thing is to be cursed by God. Or to go back to 10 o'clock this morning to be under the condemnation of God. These Pharisees with unbelievable arrogance say, you're the ones cursed of God. We got it right. Again, you're talking about something that is unbelievable to its extent. But then notice that name I promised you. Nicodemus saith unto them. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's an expert in the law. Nicodemus is the one that came to Jesus by night in John chapter number 3 and asked all kinds of questions about how can a man be born again? How can a man, all these things be accomplished? Jesus told him, ye must be born again. This is the same Nicodemus. He that came to Jesus by night, here's how we know it's the same man, being one of them. What's the phrase one of them means? A man who was a Pharisee who knew the law, a Pharisee. Nicodemus is standing up in the midst of this. A member of the religious court stands up to speak for Christ. Now make very clear here, this is not a confession that Nicodemus at this point believes he is the Christ. He's only protecting Jesus' rights to be heard. Now that's important. Because if you preach this as Nicodemus' faith in Christ over the next four verses, you've completely missed this. Nowhere does it say Nicodemus stands up and says, this is the Messiah. Look what he says. He's not confessing faith. He doesn't defend Jesus' claims. He clearly states that the law does not condemn a man until he is heard and proper witnesses have been assembled. Doth our law, here's what he says, verse 51, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth. 
Nicodemus was a stickler for process, for procedure. In other words, he says even to the Pharisees, listen, rulers and officers, you even know, our law states you cannot condemn a man until he's been heard. And not only is he to be heard, but know what he's doing. To this point, Jesus has performed miracles. He's performed healings. He has claimed to be, uh, he's, he's claiming some equality with God. He's speaking with authority. Nicodemus stands up, defends Jesus' rights. Now, some have said, and I, I'm not going to be dogmatic about this. Some have looked into this and said that Jesus, or Nicodemus is saying this because at this point, Nicodemus had a secret faith in Christ already that he was leaving undercover. I, I don't, I'm not subscribing to that, and I don't think you're a heretic if you do. I'm just telling you, I don't, it doesn't tell us anything about faith or belief. It just says, give this man due process. And by the way, when Jesus goes to the cross in his court proceedings, he doesn't get due process. It basically, at the time, he's arrested, he's convicted, he doesn't defend himself, but he didn't get due process, but he did get the father's process, and he got the father's appointed time, and it happened exactly according to the way God said it would happen. But Nicodemus is standing up and defending Jesus' rights to be heard. Verse 52. They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. Now, who is this question directed at? They're asking Nicodemus. Nicodemus, are you also of Galilee? It's really quite remarkable what's happening here. They are not saying this in seriousness. They're saying this in Sarcasm. I, <clears throat> it's an amazing thing. It, it's, this is not just them trying to get to the bottom of it. They're literally saying, almost like, you're supporting him? Are you of Galilee too? Are you a Galilean? Are you one of his followers? And they declare, no prophet comes out of Galilee. And again, we go back to the original intent of this story. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They were not to look for a man of Galilee. They were to look for the man, not of Nazareth. They were to look for the man who was born in Bethlehem. If you find the prophet that was born in Bethlehem, you find the Messiah. You find the Christ. You find the one that has been prophesied. Now, let's be, let's, let's be a little bit more technical here. It's not exactly true that there were no prophets out of Galilee. And this is an interesting study for you. If you study the lineage of Jonah and of Nahum, you will find that they were Galileans. But you will also see that this is the same theme that was running through what had happened in earlier chapters in verse 32 of John 7, John 7, 41, uh, that there is still this question about who he is. These, these religious leaders had no desire to know who this Jesus really was. You know what, you know what they never did? They never took the time to discover that Jesus had actually been born of the tribe of Judah. 
that Jesus actually came from the family of David. What was Galilee to Jesus? It was where he grew up. Part of where he grew up, it wasn't the birthplace. It was part of his life, but as little as Nicodemus did, all he did, what it appears to do, is he stopped the proceedings against Jesus from going on. Look what it says in verse 53, the last verse. Every man went unto his own house. Nicodemus' words literally stopped the proceedings at that moment of furthering to get Jesus. Now we know ultimately God is in control of it. But Nicodemus, who doesn't even profess claim, claim to Christ, says, give this man his due process. Now, since we know the end of the story, this is remarkable to us. Now, do, most likely, since Nicodemus came by night, the other Pharisees probably never even knew about the meeting that Jesus had with him. And what's amazing is when they go to anoint the body of Jesus for burial, there's a man mentioned there, and that man's name is Nicodemus. Somewhere between the conversation he had with Jesus in the gar- in the, uh, at night and when he anoints the body for burial, Nicodemus came to faith. Now, here's what I'm telling you. We are all about, we all think that this is going to happen instantaneously. And we think true salvation is going to happen in an instant. I'm here to tell you, there are times that when God is working, it takes time in the life of people for them to be brought to Christ. And just because a person hears a gospel message and they get up and they don't get saved that day, don't write them off. We have gotten so enamored with the flash in the pan salvation conversion that we lose sight of the fact that even some of the greatest religious teachers, Nicodemus was the top, one of the top ones. After his meeting with Jesus at night, he did not come out of there with faith. To this point, whether he had secret faith or not, the Bible doesn't say he had faith. It just said this man says, give him due process. But later when you see his words, you see that Nicodemus indeed became a man who placed his faith and trust in this Christ. Listen, there's two really points we can look at and we'll finish with this. Nicodemus is suggesting that something, there's a work of grace going on in his life. I would tell you today, grace is a, grace is a very mysterious thing. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I would tell you, I didn't even really know what a work of grace is. I was just, grace was just a nebulous term to me. It really was. I said it, I sang about it. I did not really understand what grace really is. It was a buzzword. It was a word I heard all my life. I actually claimed all my life I'm saved by grace. I didn't even know what that meant. I had no idea what being saved by grace meant. I thought saved by grace meant that Jesus did what I asked him to do. Instead of understanding that it's not about what I asked Jesus to do, it's what Jesus did for me. And that's a whole different perspective. I understand it now. Do I fully comprehend the whys and the hows? No. That's part of the progression of grace. You that have been saved by grace know more about grace now than what you did know. Nicodemus, the religious expert, grace is progressing. These critics, had they taken the trouble and the time to just study the facts about Jesus' birthplace, 
They would have found that he was born in Bethlehem, not Galilee. These religious experts missed one of the most clear indications that Jesus would be the Messiah. There was a hole in their doctrine. There was a hole in their theology. But they were certain, everyone else, if you believe this man, you're deceived. Folks, and if you think this spirit isn't alive and well today, there are people today that say, if all you have is faith in Christ, you're deceived. There's got to be more to that. The pharisaical ideas and the pharisaical way of life, even in our churches, is alive and well. It's functioning. People who can quote scripture better than you, they can walk circles around you about their understanding of things, and yet they are as far away from Christ as they can possibly be. Folks, don't ever use your knowledge of the Bible to be a place where you find some source of pride. Now, you ought to know your Bible. You ought to do all you can to understand it. But let's be careful that we don't just have a knowledge of the Bible and not a knowledge of Him. Now, there's something in these enemies of Christ. And let's remember that. The Pharisees were enemies of the cross. And that's, that is an accusation. Be careful about that too. This is just a word of admonition. Be careful about labeling anybody who thinks differently than you a Pharisee because Pharisee was an enemy of the cross. Not everybody who thinks differently than you is an enemy. Not everybody who thinks differently than me is an enemy. There's a difference between having disagreements about certain things, but also having a division about who Christ is. The Pharisees wanted nothing to do with Christ. They were enemies of the cross. And I would tell you this, those are the people we've got to be very careful about. But when a man spoke with the kind of wisdom and power and grace that Christ spoke with, many, there are many who appear to be hearers of the word. They speak highly about Jesus. Suddenly one day fall away. We like to conveniently call them in our churches today. Well, they're just away from Jesus for a bit. We lose sight of the fact that there were some that were never part of it. There were some, and you say that today, and people get mad at you. They say, don't talk about my loved one that way. I'm not saying it. The Bible is filled with people who love something more than God. They love something more than Christ. And they were once the people sitting, and this is just an illustration. I'm not saying this about you folks. They were sitting on the front row of this of a church. They wanted everything to do with God. They were soaking it all in. And then suddenly... They're gone, not just from this church. They're gone from even any acknowledgement of Christ. Now we can call it, you can call it whatever you want. But listen, there's, if, there's not more, if there's not more than just a head knowledge of the Bible, you will not remain. Unless you have tasted of the graciousness of God, unless you fully understand that this is not just about filling our heads with knowledge and debate there have been people who have been swayed by outward motives in an eternal moment. I've watched emotionalism get so high and so revved up. I want you to listen to me. I was ready to run forward and get saved again. Do you all know what I'm saying? I didn't need to be saved again. The moment gets you. The moment catches you to where you say, oh, I I'm missing something. Listen, if you have Christ, you have all that you need. The wisdom of God chooses things which men despise. I bet you didn't think about this today, but it's a wise thing to trust in Christ. But the world says you're a fool. 
Go proclaim that in most places in this, this town, town surrounding. Go proclaim that your faith and your hope and your trust is in Christ alone. And they will look at you like you're crazy. They'll use phrases like religion is a crutch. They'll say things like, I don't need God. I can stand on my own two feet. And how foolish of a statement can you make? None of us stands on our own two feet. None of you even holds your body together. You are only alive and breathing by the grace of God, believer or non-believer. It's God's grace. It's holding man together. The Lord brings forward what appears to be the weakest. Now you think about that. That's why the Jews had such a problem with Jesus too, because how could our Messiah come as a baby? We want his kingdom now. We want him to rule over now. That can't be our Messiah. That's humble. That is, that's pitiful. What kind of a Messiah comes in the form of a baby? Yet that baby that was born, that God that took on robe of human flesh, was the very defeat who would live his life, would go to the cross, would be crucified, would be dead, would be buried, would raise again, would ascend. That very baby would become the very one who defeated all the enemies of the cross. I don't know what happened to these Pharisees. I, I don't ever even try to guess or suggest. I would never make a declarative statement that every single one of these Pharisees never came to saving faith in Christ. It's a general thought. Pharisees as a general, we don't know if they ever came to faith. But today, my question to you is, is do you believe that this Jesus is the Christ? Not just a good man, not just a prophet, but do you believe he is the Christ, the Christ who came to save sinners? Because what you think about beyond that is not going to matter. Because if Christ is just a good example, it's not enough. If Christ is who he said he is, and we believe that he is scripturally, then we can trust him. We repent, we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the Christ. This Christ that was born in Bethlehem. Let's stand together.